Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. We are back, Adam, after a bit of a break for Christmas and insurrection, but we are back (laughs) for a new year. And today we're going to talk about one of the best films from last year coming out of the small acts anthology that Steve McQueen made for the BBC called Lover's Rock. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University of Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister at Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And in our first segment, Justification by Faith, we're going to talk about how Lover's Rock might help us think about life in the church and in the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to discuss how Lover's Rock might help us understand the lectionary passages for Sunday, February 14th, the last Sunday in Epiphany, also known as Transfiguration Sunday. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. So, Adam, 2020 was sort of an odd year and an odd year for movies, (laughs) too, right? I mean, not to mention all the falling apart of the world, but there were so many releases that were pushed out of cinemas and so many big ticket releases pushed into 2021 and beyond. I feel like as a movie year, it could have easily been pretty disappointing. But personally, I spent a lot of the Christmas and insurrection season watching some of the work that showed up on streaming services this year. And and I am here to tell you that 2020 is a great movie year. And for my money, at the very top of that list is the work of Steve McQueen, director of 12 Years a Slave and Widows, who has made a new five film anthology series for the BBC called Small Acts each one of these films about some part of the experience of West Indian immigrant communities in London in the 70s and 80s. And the best of those for my money, again, is called Lover's Rock, which is hour and five minute long story of a reggae house party in West London in 1980, where lovers meet and music plays and something about the danger of white society gets held at the door. There's actually not a lot of plot in this movie, but there's so much story in it and I can't wait to talk about it. I do wanna say first that this isn't really a movie that you can spoil. McQueen has such a naturalistic vibe and this is almost more of an experiential piece than it is a a story with plot and, and resolution. So if you haven't seen the movie for this conversation, that's okay. Hang out with us anyway, and then go watch it. I promise you, we're not going to, we can't spoil the experience of watching it for you. Yeah. If you're in the States, you can go grab it on Amazon Prime, but that's enough from me. Adam, I want to hear from you. I browbeat you into watching this for the show. What did you think? And how did Lover's Rock help you think about the work we do here on this pod? So I had heard, you know, in in the wind about these projects that Steve McQueen was doing. And I, I think he's such a superlative filmmaker. I, you know, 12 Years a Slave is obviously uh, monumental. I, I love Widows. And I just, I, I think his 
his voice, his storytelling, the way he moves cameras, the, just his ability to capture people, not to mention the fact that like, I think he's a really beautiful filmmaker, made me really interested in this larger project. Because I think if you're gonna do a five film project, a sort of like Kozlowski, Red, White and Blue, you need right. that, you need to be an auteur. Like you actually have to have like a vision. Right. And if you, told me like, okay, what filmmaker would you like to see that from? He would have been in the top tier, I think. Um, I, I think his just ability to, to capture worlds and, um, and sort of infuse them with vibrancy and, and detail is, is really incredible. And so I, I love his films. And so this film, I, I found kind of intoxicating. <laughs> Yeah. It's um, it captures something that is both on the one hand, very, very specific. He is looking at a house party in West London among West Indian immigrants who are not allowed to go to clubs because they are black in England at this point or in London. Right. And so they have found ways to gather themselves around music like any group of young people would. And that's the other part of this, which is that there is something deeply universal about this story too, that you can see, even if you don't listen to reggae or dub or the dance hall that's sort of central or the lover's rock that's sort of central um, with respect to the music genre of this movie. There's something about being young, sort of free, uh, libidinous and at a house where music just never stops playing <laughs> and it's not a club it's a house and there is a there is a specific intimacy to that point that I think is really central to this film and to any experience that anybody has had at a house where music is playing and a whole bunch of people who only sort of know each other all show up and then it happens right like that music just kind of bound binds people together it casts a spell and this movie like captures that incredibly i mean so much of the movie is just spent on a dance floor while people dance and sing with each other right like I, I mean i would say three quarters of the movie is yeah about it's got to be 45 minutes out of a 65 minute film is just steve mcqueen's camera roaming a dance floor while music which is, plays which is wild because right. i mean the courage that you have to have as a filmmaker to say like I can capture people's attention with the movement of this camera, right. the beauty of these bodies, the wonder of this music uh, is kind of astounding, right? Like tell a music or tell a film executive that that's what you're going to do. They're going to laugh you out of the room, but he right. does it, right? Yeah. And, and so I, this movie is like incredibly sexy. It has, it has deep heart and care but it has some danger in it. Um, and that menace comes from both within and from without. There is latent pain um, that is sort of threatening to erupt at various different times. And so his ability to infuse this movie with, with a vibe that is like all encompassing is remarkable. It, it's truly remarkable. And 
Um, I, we can talk about the details of the characters and and the decisions that they make and the and the pairs that happen and the music that's told that's telling this larger story. But I, I would say that the whole that this movie is a vibe, right? Right. It's 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 not a concert movie, but it has like the best of the concert movies where the music is a central character, and that was incredible. Yeah, Adam, I, I think that's right. You know, there's there's the structure of this thing is remarkable where you've got maybe five minutes of bookends on both sides that actually almost have some plot and story to them. You have this, you know, Martha is sneaking out of her house to go to this party. And at the end, she's um, she's left the party with somebody and will they be able to find a space to be together? And then she sneaks back into her house. and. Also, at the very beginning, you have these amazing shots of, of the house getting ready, of the people preparing, and that your distinction between the house and the club. Well, this is a house, and you know it is because they're like moving the couch out of the way. You have the DJs that are there setting up and rehearsing what they're going to say and how they're going to call the crowd. And you have this little galley kitchen where these women are cooking up these amazing looking pots of, of stew and curry and whatnot. And then you have... Um, you know, for, for 45, 50, 60 minutes in the middle of it, this sort of explosion of, of music and sensation and feeling, it's, it's obviously much different subject matter, but the structure of it, just talking now, almost reminds me of Job, right? Where mm -hmm. you have like, yeah. you, have, you, have, you have prose narrative on the beginning and end, and then just poetic explosion. It's just, yeah, it's just poetry for the rest of the time. For the, for the middle. Yeah, it's all impressionistic. I mean, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and and then in that very beginning sequence with those women in the kitchen, what they do is they start to sing this song. They're singing the 1979 Lover's Rock hit. It was a hit in the UK called called Silly Games by a woman named Janet Kay. It's actually not a song I knew, um, but you can hear them start to sing this, which is just a pop chart song that would have been around in 1980 when this party is happening. But then the song comes back. And in what 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 is this scene. for yeah. clearly for me the the the, <laughs> the 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 centerpiece of this film and like for me kind of one of the top one of the greatest moments of movies using previously recorded music that I can think of full stop Ooh. is is the sequence of them playing the pop the recording of silly games on the dance floor. This is a like a 10 minute long sequence in an hour long film. So it's a, it's a huge amount of real estate. And McQueen plays the whole thing through. The whole, the whole song, crowd, yeah, the whole song, the whole- uh, the, the, the whole song as, as diegetics score, right? I mean, it's being yeah. played on the dance floor. We are listening to it being played on the dance floor. We are watching the dance, People dance to it. We're watching the bodies move, the couples form, the relationships and the romance form. The camera is just roaming freely through it. And then the music comes to an end. The song comes to an end and the DJ doesn't put a thing on. And for the next five minutes, the crowd just sings the song again. And there is no soundtrack except their voices. And they know every word. Oh my and lord, it is so good. It's just <laughs> breathtaking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The first time I watched this, my jaw was just on the floor. The second time I watched it, 
I sang along. Mm-hmm. It became liturgical, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it becomes worshipful. I mean, we're going to get to that, but this thing just knocked me over. Yeah. It's Pentecost, man. It, it, it's, it's the spirit moves. Everyone hears and understands, right? It's, yeah. um, there's no, there's no need to explain anything. Uh, because at least in that moment to everybody who's present, it is absolutely self-evident what you are expected to do. It's, it's breathtaking. And so, I, and I think it, it sort of pushes us towards the metaphor that kind of hangs over this con- conversation, which is to what extent uh, we are watching a church happen. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and what that means for us who serve congregations that look a lot different than this one, you know, what, what, what it means for us to even invoke that. Is this a worshiping community? And, 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 and in what way? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and honestly, I think McQueen himself glances at the question because it's not this is not something that we are immediately importing here because I think by the end of the story, Martha who has paired, who has found some moment of connection um, via this party, via a couple of different experiences of, of, of courage, security, protection, vulnerability. Um, and she sneaks in to her home early in the morning in her party clothes, which also double as her church clothes. And her mother or someone in her family screams up that it's time to go to church. Um, This is also, um, I, I would say supported by the fact that when she gets into her room, the immediate Christian iconography that's around that McQueen flashes to is everywhere. There's a crucifix. There's like a little tchotchke that has the Lord's prayer on it. Prior to her going home, there's a guy who carries a crucifix around London. Right. Um, there, I, I think McQueen is glancing that this is a cathedral and this isn't, this isn't a new idea. I think you see something very similar in the color purple, for instance. Um, but he I think is is suggesting that this this is a temple of something, right? That and it's a temple that allows you to do and be things that perhaps the the institutionalized church does not. And in some ways, the doing and the being of those things are all the more necessary, given the circumstances of living as immigrants in a place that's unwelcoming, uh, trying to find humanness, love, affection, sex, all of that in, uh, in the world. I, I think that that's, that's a, that's a, there's something to be said about that. There, I don't think it's a church. Like there doesn't seem to be much message but there are things about this environment that I wish churches were. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I think. You know, we we see the 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 guy walking with the crucifix at the very beginning of the film, and then we see him again at the end, right, <clears throat> getting off the bus, and and it's um, 
he actually he actually uh it's it's folded up at the end yeah. he gets off the bus and then he has to unfold the crucifix yeah and and so the first time i watched this i was thinking man this what a what a cool vision of church at this in this party in this house um the second time i watched it watching him unfold the crucifix i thought oh i think there's something more cutting here which is that in mcqueen's in the, in the in the logic of the movie we've had to fold up the cross and sort of put it away for a while in order for this gathering to happen that it's you, you've had to put away the symbols of um a white church and a and, and a um a sort of a colonial imagination in order for this worshiping community to have its liturgy mm-hmm. and then and then after the party is over there's it there's it almost feels like sadness then to be able to bring that cross back out because it comes with it, it comes with so much of the um the, the the white categories of london around it at the same time yeah um, i think that's right and and in addition to that, I think McQueen is, has deep affection for the people who are making those transitions, right? I, I sure. think the fact that Martha moves from one to the other, m- at least in McQueen's eyes, is, it makes her kind of superhuman, right? Because yeah. she's not going to sleep, right? No, no, no. She and should she's be g- quite tired at this point. Yeah, and she's going to code switch really quickly, as does um, oh, the name of the gentleman who, who she pairs with, um, that that their ability to cross boundaries in this world is not a delights the wrong world, but I, I think McQueen admires it because yeah. it's a, it's such a true talent for them to be able to do that. And, um, and that's why they're the, they're the heroes of the movie in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you look at this party, like what about it is attractive to you as church? Like, in what way should it be a model for the way we do church? Well, I, I do think the sheer, um, the, the, the sort of liturgical ecstasy of it mm-hmm. is incredibly compelling, right? I mean, that silly game sequence is liturgy. And, and I know it is because it had a liturgical effect on me. Um, because I, again, the second time watching this, and I think that I had to experience the, between the two times of watching this much, I think similar to the experience of, of being a newcomer in a congregation and finding your way in. Mm-hmm. Like the, the first time I watched that I was watching other people. And the second time I watched it, I started singing along. Um, which is not to say that my experience is similar to that of this particular community, but I, I, I did find myself wanting to join. Um, and there was something really powerful about that. I think about the ordination vow that I took to further the peace, unity, and purity of the mm-hmm. church. And the way that this community self-polices is really yeah. fascinating to me. Uh-huh. Um, now, again, like the I, I want to be really careful because of course th- this is a th- this this is an immigrant community in um that that is that is unsafe in the world around it in a way that the congregation that I serve is drastically not. 
Right. And, and so like we have really, really different cultural contexts, but it was fascinating. Like th- what they know is that calling the police isn't going to help them for anything at all. And so they have, there, there's danger in that party. There is sexual abuse in that party. There are, there's, there are, questions around drugs at that party. There's questions about behavior that is not fully accepted and yet is going to be regulated internally. Sexual abuse happens and the guy who starts it is not asked to leave. It's, he's, yeah. he, he's stopped, but he is not asked to leave. Um, the uh, CT shows up and the bouncer is very suspicious about this guy. He is not well loved. He is not does not come with good reputation. Dude, there's but a they, background they, there. That's that's a really fascinating but, scene. But then you see so the cop car come down the street in the back of the shot, and the bouncer is like, "Get in this house," you know. And, and immediately, it's we we're going to navigate that peace, unity, and purity internal to this space because the outside is so complicated and and um, perilous. And I, that is sort of a fascinating, again, not the, not the model for the church I serve, um, but an interesting model for how we think about those ordination vows. Yeah. And, and I think additionally, just the power of private space, especially right. for those who are unsafe largely in the world, right? I think we, we so often in churches talk about all are welcome. And that's, to some extent, that's that's part of the that's sort of the message here. Um, except not everyone is welcome. You, like this, you have to have a certain set of experiences to participate here. And I, and I actually wondered, like, is this kind of what the early church felt like, which is that it's a terrible world to live in, um, and you find some measure of respite in the house. Some, not all, because there are still predators in the house. Right. This is it's not Eden and it's not Shangri-La and there is no true and total escape from the dangers and insecurities of the world. Um, But like you said, there's 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 an attempt to try and navigate that, knowing that the systems themselves will more readily chew you up than the systems inside the house than the rules inside the house. Yeah, there's there's a heck of a sermon series to be done on this film and like First Corinthians. Right, where Paul is so constantly navigating, like, you know, how the, the, the boundaries of inside and outside with the dangers of empire around you, but also the behavioral needs to regulate the community itself internally. Um, I think there's a really interesting text to hold up to this. Yeah. And I, I think the other thing that was really fascinating to me about this, this house and its, and this party and its, spell on things is that initially the dance floor is almost entirely filled with women mm-hmm. and then it's and the men are on the peripheral and then they begin to pair and it's in that that almost sort of climactic scene of of silly games where you start to see the pairings happening but there are always like in nearly every party i've ever been to there are always more men than women um and so now the men are left alone and a a sort of more rhythmic present um set of music dub begins to happen and even then like this becomes though you didn't pair and find a partner 
there is an opportunity for relief, um, for an exercising your voice, your body, and the and the the dancing becomes a bit more aggressive, but it becomes a a bit more ecstatic too in its mm-hmm. own way. It has a sort of charismatic feel and. CT who who showed up and was unwanted is ultimately given the mic at some point, which mm-hmm. I, I think is a sort of has an interesting lesson for us to learn with respect to how to care for those people who are hard to care for. Um, but there's there's these moments where okay, so now most of the women are gone from the dance floor, and it's all nearly all men, and there's a a different need shows up to exercise body and voice in an insecure world and in an, in, an, in an oppressive world that is constantly controlling voice, sense, how to look. I mean, I, I, I found that, that pretty astute as a, as, a, as a vision, not only of sort of communities, but also of worshiping or faith communities. Yeah, I think we may have said everything we can without also holding up some scripture next to this. So let's move in that direction. But before we do that, I want to say how grateful we are for our partnership with the Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing. A couple of things to draw to your attention. First, friend and guest of the show, Jerusha Mastin Neal, has published a book and there is a nice review of it on their website. Additionally, Yolanda Pierce's article about drawing strength from the memory of her African-American ancestors is worth your time and attention especially as you consider the power of memory and faith in ministry. If you are listening to the show and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday Morning Matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Matt, let's talk about preaching. The texts for this upcoming lectionary are from Year B, February 14th. It's the last Sunday in Epiphany, Transfiguration Sunday. We have Elijah exiting the scene on a chariot of fire, leaving behind Elisha. We have the transfiguration narrative from Mark. And then in your B, we continue on with Paul's letters to Corinth and also Psalm 50. So Matt, what's sticking with you as you consider Lover's Rock and these lectionary passages? At the risk of taking the, taking the elephant in the room, I think we should talk about the Mark passage, this gospel transfiguration text, and some of the kind of colonial imagination that we can bring to it. Um, you, you have this bit where Jesus takes the disciples up on the mountaintop and then reveals his true self, and his true self is manifest in these robes of blinding white. And I think that whiteness can get us in trouble in this text a couple sometimes when we are mm-hmm. not careful with our language and our metaphors. And I think a, a way to interrogate it would be to imagine this story happening in the middle of the house party in Lover's Rock, a place where uh, gleaming whiteness is not for good reason a symbol of divinity or grace or anything like it. But as you see in the contours of the film every once in a while, whiteness is actually a symbol of danger and threat uh, and colonialism. And so I, I just wanna name that because I think it's really important to be careful how we talk about the color imagination of this story and, and, and perhaps to be a little bit more thorough and diligent because 
I think at its heart, this transfiguration narrative is, is about undoing the prejudicial categories that we can use around skin color or ability or anything else. I mean, the, the, what's happening is that Jesus wants to show the disciples who he is underneath. And there is something beautifully transgressive about that. It, it, it's, um, I've, heard this, I've heard this story preached as a way of talking about uh, sexual identity as a way of talking about racial identity, as a way of talking about this sort of transgressive moment where Jesus doesn't fit into any of the categories that the disciples or the society around him would have put on top of him. And I think that interpretation bears some, some attention from us in a way that is a little bit more rigorous and beautiful and expansive than something as simple as, um, look how white Jesus is, isn't that beautiful <laughs> and cool? Because yeah. th that language uh, it's got some baggage and some history with it. Yeah, it certainly does. And uh, so, you know, I was actually doing a little bit of study in Isaiah this this week, and I was kind of surprised by the so how often, at least in Isaiah's oracles, the judgment of God comes through light that blinds interesting you know that that the thing that is necessary in order to see comes at such with such force and such ubiquity that it actually prevents you from doing the thing that you're supposed to be doing and i wonder if there's something there too with this passage as you think about this is that jesus is revealed but it is a blinding light and and it is designed to at least humble the disciples into questioning their assumptions about what they understand and see in the world right like that that I, I i'm trying to sort of play with the idea of like how does how does the light that blinds us actually serve as judgment on the things that we've that we've for too long considered to be true yeah, I think that's really fascinating. And I think the Isaiah poll on that is really interesting. I think you'd have to reckon with if it's a light, if it's a blinding light of judgment in Mark, then why is Peter therefore so eager to hang out? <laughs> you, you, you don't you don't get the fear response that I would expect from the disciples in that moment. Yeah. And so figuring out what to do with that, I would think would be a would be a good exegetical challenge, but I love the challenge because I think that would yeah. that, that gets at some of um it certainly helps get at some of the critique and some of the concern over ways that this passage has been casually used in the past. Yeah, and I think so. And I think with respect to this movie too, right? It's um what is being revealed is always more complicated. And I think that this movie does this really well, that each person has a sort of another part that gets slowly revealed to you in over the course, especially, I mean, it's three quarters into the movie where CT shows up and has this conversation with Martha about the death of her, uh, of CT's mother, but also the abusive relationship of Martha's father. And it's, and it's sort of told obliquely but you're starting, it, it reveals the deep hidden parts of these people um, in the midst of this that, in a way that I found um, 
pretty subtle, but also true to life, which is to say that like the revelation of God takes like, it takes a while for, for the disciples to see it, but the revelation of, of humanness also takes a while too. Mm-hmm. Like, and considering the ways in which we deal with the incarnation and, and the revelation of Christ, like maybe we shouldn't in the same way that we shouldn't under just assume we understand what the revelation of God means. Maybe we shouldn't also understand the revelation of Christ as human either. As, so I, the other thing that I wanted to talk about with this particular passage is, um, is the Elijah passage, which, um, which is not just about uh, this, this image of chariots of fire sort of picking up Elijah and taking him off into heaven. It's, it's, um, it's an image of a transfer of, of prophetic power from Elijah to Elisha. And in many ways is about how do you, is about Elisha's ability to receive from Elijah, the mantle of prophet. Um, And I was, I was really interested in the ways in which historically these characters in Lover's Rock were the second generation kids of West Indian immigrants, or as it's sometimes called the 1.5 generation. That is, they like were born in Jamaica, for instance, and then arrived. And there's this little telling little interchange in very early in the movie where two characters are having a conversation and one asks, well, where are you from in Jamaica? And she says, I was born here. And then they start, they have a little back and forth about where their families are from and what that means for them. And, um, but it also like the, the, the name Lover's Rock is a genre of music that was born of British West Indian immigrant experience because they wanted to sing songs, but the reggae that was coming from Jamaica, for instance, was largely political and almost totally political in the way that it dealt with its subject matter. But these young British immigrants also wanted love songs. And they didn't, they wanted a different, they wanted to take the genre and use it in a different way with to, to entertain and discuss different experience. And, and so at the heart of this movie is this question about like, how do you take what has been given and how much do you have to receive of it? And how much do you get to change? And in what way do you inherit the good things of the past? And what's your obligation to keep them and steward them? And I think these are all really important church questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would have loved to have watched this movie next to someone who's had that experience, that sort of second generation or 1.5 generation experience of immigration and see how they heard and saw the, um, the tension that's at the heart of this community as it tries to understand itself and express itself. Yeah, Adam, I think I think that's really good and it's really right. And it's helping me, th- it's a really helpful lens on that text in particular to think about the generational change, to think about the the, the transfer and the passage of time. And, and it, 
it's actually, this is not the movie we're supposed to be talking about, but it's helping me think about a movie I've seen a thousand times, which is the namesake from that text as the, the, the British racing and Olympics film Chariots of Fire, which it, it kind of purports to be a movie about speed and competition. Um, and I have preached on it before to talk about Sabbath because of the Eric Little character who won't race on Sundays. But really the heart of that movie at the very, very end is after Harold Abrahams wins his sprint, which is the thing he's been training for his whole life. And he has this sort of burden. There's this sadness about it that he's done the thing. Um, and, that, and that it's time for him to move on. And that I now understand the naming of that film as related to his, mm. his, his passage away. Um, just to keep jumping metaphors you know he gets on the he gets on the boat with frodo and sails off to the lands in the west there's something over about his time that i think you get here with with elijah and that is really really helpful framing well and i I think we can i I think there's it's a little bit of that is present in the movie too right which is that you the gift of having an ecstatic experience is that you get to touch something that is as close to transcendent as humans can experience. But it puts in stark relief the rest of your life. Yeah. And this has always been, I, I, this is the, the great gift and the, the struggle of Pentecostal churches now, which is that a, a church built around the, charis, the charisms of the spirit, the charismatic, the ecstatic, um, the highs are really high, but it's when you don't have it, when you don't feel it any longer, or you have to move back into the realm of the imminent, that's a, that's a far fall. It's really hard. Um, because I, I think at least in lover's rock, you see two people pair off. They seem to have a real connection, whether it's just a youthful sort of mm, connection of passion and libido or whether it's something deeper, we don't know. And the, and the movie actually sort of leaves it to us to sort of root for her to call him um, because we want him to succeed ultimately. Um, but right before that scene where they talk about calling each other, you know, they're gonna go have sex and they're interrupted. Uh, and in some ways like the sex was supposed to be the culmination of this ecstatic experiment or the, or the continuation of this ecstatic moment. But the world intervenes. Yeah. It always intervenes. Eventually. Because you don't get to be ecstatic forever. And when you do, what happens then? Like, that's a, that just sucks. It's hard. And I, I, I think the, that Elijah and Elisha moment, like, I, I, I feel for both of them in that moment and, and, and the desires that they have and the needs that they have and, and how Elisha gets to see this thing that happens, but then is utterly despondent afterwards. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, it's such a rich passage there's so much there. There's like the, the whole, the, the hitting the water and the, the echo of, um, of seas parting in elsewhere in scripture is, is present in it. It's a, yeah, I, it's one of my favorites. I really love that story. 
Well, speaking of coming down from ecstatic experiences, I think we have to move on with our podcast, Adam, and, and, and move into our last segment. All um, right. So uh, it's called Postludes. A little chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, you got to tell me what's your postlude for the week. Okay. So this movie in in will help me make a connection. Um, <laughs> in that this movie is top tier in its ability to use music to invoke feeling and sense. Um, that music is largely, as you said earlier, diegetic. That is, it's it's part of the house and the room that everybody is hearing in the movie. Um, but that music places, you, it gives you a vibe, gives you a tone, gives you a mood. Um, Children's music, especially in children's shows, suck. It's the worst, and <laughs> and I know this because I have a um, a, a three year old who um, who wants to listen to the music from the shows that he watches, and they're on the whole horrible. Like I have to listen to you know the Blaze and the Monster Machine theme song before he goes to bed. It's 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 mind numbing. We. I don't know how we happened upon it, but about two weeks ago on Disney plus, we started watching this Australian show called bluey. Are you familiar with bluey, Matt? No, I have a feeling. I think it's too, it's too young for, for your, your son, but um, it's, it's perfect for a three, four and a three and four year old. And then Elliot, my seven year old gets sucked into it. Not only is it really funny, like it's, it's like, it's incredibly well done. Each show, so to speak, is eight minutes. So in that way, it's a little bit like Lovers Rock, right? It's like not, it's a little bit shorter than the average length of what a TV, right. like vignette of a kid's show would be. And it's these three, this family of four dogs. It routinely is some of the best children's storytelling I have seen in a very long time. It's incredible. And part of what makes it incredible is that the music that attaches to it is really good and thoughtful and and a little bit like Lover's Rock in a very different genre. Captures this mood. Mm. And it's it's a it's a really, really good example of storytelling, like short storytelling. And if you just want to see some good stories, they're really good. And I've watched them and I and I'm surprised but on the whole like its ability to invoke emotion via music is is pretty stunning and um and now Eamon asked for um bluey music and i'm happy to do it because i just i like it and it's and it's mostly electronic but even then it's like it's really good so that's my that's my post lude. i i would i commit it to anybody uh, not only just for the music part but i i really think that it's it's a, such a good example of how storytelling can like, yeah, can just can move you. It's really good. It's really good to hear, especially because I feel like as streaming services and this current age of content production that we're in, like with with having so much content out there with the with the scale of content that we have out there, I feel like, 
film and TV music has not scaled alongside. The quality of it has not scaled uh, alongside. I feel like in general, most of the theme and the supporting music that I get in Netflix and other streaming shows is is is, is not quite what what it might have once been. Um, and and I feel the same about some of the some of the the movie stuff too. I mean, for all the remarkable work that has gone into threading the Marvel Cinematic Universe together, their 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 soundtrack music is sort of eh, compared to like what, yeah. what a franchise of that scale would have been. 30 years ago. And I, I well, want to read, I, yeah. this is my, I want to read a long form explainer on what's going on here. We There's just, only one Ludwig Gorenson, man. Like that, we just, we just have a very limited number of, of decent, soundtrack composers out there and there's only so much that trent reznor and john williams can do in any given day and that's where we are i mean yeah and it's that that black panther score is the only one that's worth a damn like so and it's it's written by a dude who who like reznor and um is kind of a savant in a lot of different ways yeah so anyway if there's a good long form piece out there i want someone to send it to me um i want to talk about just because Obviously, I, I I I love Lovers Rock, but I just want to run through real quick some of the other great stuff that I've seen over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, um, break it down. Um, and I hope that we can come back to one or more of these on the show at some point. I don't talk too much about any of them because I don't want to give anything too much away. But here are other things you should go watch on streaming if you were listening to this show and are interested. Um, obviously, you should watch the rest of Small Axe, which is Small Axe, which is on Amazon Prime. I have not seen all of them. I have seen three out of five. The first one, Mangrove, is also really, really good. Totally different thing. Courtroom drama, um, much different piece, but fabulous in its own right. Um, go watch Sound of Metal on Amazon Prime. This is Darius Martyr's film about a heavy metal drummer who loses his hearing. This is transcendent, and it's really essential, especially for preachers. You got to see this one to help you navigate all the metaphors in scripture about deafness and blindness mm, and ability. Mm. This is it's really critical stuff um, and incredibly compelling. Um, uh, go watch Ma Rainey's Black Bottom on Netflix. This is George C. Wolfe's adaptation of the August Wilson play with Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman. Uh, the, just good to hear like language written by someone who can write language for dialogue the whole thing is electric and Viola Davis is in command of this thing like few performances I've ever seen. She is in charge and it is awesome. Uh, go watch The Vast of Night, which is my favorite underdog movie of the year. Andrew, Andrew Patterson, uh, I think maybe he wants to grow up to be Steven Spielberg. This is his debut take on something like a classic Twilight Zone episode in a small Texas town. The filmmaking is so good. It's so precise and he is in such command. It's it's a little bit like Sound of Metal in the sense that it's a movie about sound, um, but gosh, I loved it so much. Uh, the stakes are not high, but he the technical display is really, really cool. And then finally go watch Wolf Walkers. Uh, my family and I have been obsessed mm. with the Irish animation studio Cartoon Saloon who made Secret of the Kells and Song of the Sea. This is their third in this Irish folklore trilogy. Uh, it would be enough just to watch the beauty of the hand-drawn animation. I am old and sad and miss hand-drawn animation and mm -hmm. what they are doing with this stuff is just beyond. Um, but what they've 
what they also managed to do with story and character and richness and nuance is something else. And I loved every second of it. That one is on Apple TV plus. Uh, that's what I've got. We should talk about any and all of those at some point. Um, but today we're going to run out of time. <laughs> no, I look forward to that. I, I haven't seen, you know, my movie watching has fallen off a little bit here. Um, but I, I, Sound of Metal is, and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom are both on the list right now. And I'll have to check out Bass is the Night. All right, Matt, that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a ratings on iTunes or come to our show page. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Mercury Sound. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam.